We are uh, starting a new series in the book of Psalms. So um, if you have a black Bible in front of you, if you brought your own Bible, you can open up to Psalm chapter one. That's where we're gonna be tonight. If you're grabbing that black Bible, it's page 472. So you can open up to page 472. And here's what I'd love for you to do. If you could stand with me for the reading of God's word. Um, we don't stand because we worship the Bible. We stand because we worship the God of the Bible. And so we want to hear from this good God that's invited us into relationship with him. So Psalm chapter one is where we're going to be reading. Here is God's word. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bear its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the, of the wicked leads to ruin. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So um, as Andy said, as I've already said, we're starting a new series. Um, and I'm really excited about this series. And I want to share just a couple of reasons why I'm excited about this series. All right. So the first one is we're going to be in the Old Testament. Psalms is in the Old Testament. Old Testament is basically anything that was written before Jesus. So our first couple of series that we've worked through here as a church have been in the Gospel of John and in the Gospel of Matthew. Love the Gospels, love the New Testament. But here's the thing. We believe that the Bible, all of it, is necessary and needed for us to know and grow in relationship with Jesus. And so I'm excited to spend time in the Old Testament. Secondly, I'm excited to spend time specifically in the Psalms, all right? So the Psalms are biblical truth about real life questions for real life people. The, the Psalms are these songs and these poems that these people from ancient days wrote about the very things that we still wrestle with today. These songs and these poems, like they're drawing out the heart of those men and women at that point in time, wrestling with questions and issues that we still wrestle with thousands upon thousands of years ago today. Poems that were written by people who dealt with loss and threats against their own life. People who questioned the purpose of life and human existence, just like we probably all wrestled with at some point in time. People who pondered the existence of God and the proof thereof and people who grappled with issues of like justice and unity and whatever you want to fill in the blank with, faith. Like all the things that we wrestle with in this life, the Psalms deal with. And so for the next 11 weeks, we're doing this, we're calling this series Summer in the Psalms. We're going to be working through 11 different Psalms. Where we're just wrestling with these ancient old questions that have been going on for thousands upon thousands of years ago that you felt deep in your own soul, in your own life as well. And what we're doing is we're starting with Psalm 1. All right. So Psalm 1 is the preface psalm to the rest of the Psalter. So literally 150 different psalms that you find in the Old Testament. And it's a primer to the rest of the content that you'll find in all the rest of the psalms. 
And so it's like the author who is David here, he's the psalmist. It's like he's saying, let me get you ready for what you're about to, like this journey you're about to embark on. Let me, let me just give you a preface. Let me have this gateway that I'm opening for all of the things that you're going to experience in the Psalms. Let me give you sort of like the grand picture of where we're headed through Psalm chapter one. That's exactly what he's doing. And one of the things he prepares us for, us as the readers, is the wrestling with our emotions. Literally, you see every emotion that you will experience in this life dealt with in the Psalms. And what I find fascinating is that he starts with the emotion of happiness. Happiness. I mean, so you have things like sadness and you have loneliness and you have anger and you have an anxiety. All of these are dealt with in the Psalms, but David starts with the emotion of happiness. How happy is the one? And I, this is interesting because I, I think this is the very thing that every single one of us is searching for, seeking after in this life of how can I be happy? How, how can I find true, genuine joy in this life? It's the question that all of us are wrestling with. An old-time French philosopher, Blaise Pascal, wrote this. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The view, will, the view never, the, sorry, the will never takes the least step but to this object. And this is where, how intense he gets with this very thought that we're all pursuing happiness. He says, this is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Literally seeking and trying to find happiness or at least removing yourself from the place where there is no happiness. Now, you may be questioning, like, so we just worked through a series on the Beatitudes, all right? And so every single one of these starts with the word blessed, which is the same word that's being used here at the beginning of Psalm chapter one for happy. And you may be thinking, okay, well, we even touched on this in our last in-person gathering, right? Like happiness. So is this all that we're going to talk about as a church? All right. So, hey, I, I promise you we're going to, we are people of the Bible. We're going to hit every topic that's going on in the Bible throughout the history of our, the course of our church. But here's what, here's the thing. All right. So Psalm 1, it's the, it's the precursor to all that we're going to experience in the Psalms. And so you literally can't start a series through the Psalms without touching on the preface to the rest of the Psalms. And so here's, here's what all I want to do tonight. All right. Here's all I want to do. I just want to wrestle with this topic that we find in Psalm chapter one that's giving us literally the open gates to the rest of the Psalms. So Psalm one looks at the topic of happiness from like a 30,000 foot level view. While the, while the Beatitudes are more at like the ground level, they're getting into the nitty gritty. And so I just wanna look at this 30,000 foot view of happiness that the Psalmist is laying before us here in Psalm chapter one. Now there's three different movements to this, this passage. So the first is the first two verses. The psalmist is literally laying before us the two different paths that we can choose in this life. The blessed life or the wicked life. These are the two paths. There are no other paths. There are two paths that you can choose in this life. Then he moves to the next movement, which is where he compares these two. 
He literally gives us illustrations of these two different paths. And in the last movement, he goes to what the outcome is for each of these different paths that you may choose. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to draw out an aspect of the blessed life, the happy life from each of these different movements that we can look at and apply to our own life as we're working through our, our day-to-day, week-to-week, as we pursue God, pursue Jesus in this world. We'll look at some application and then we'll conclude, all right? That's, that's the roadmap. That's where we're headed, all right? So if you're a note taker, here's the first point, all right? Here's the first point. The blessed life is prudent. The blessed life is prudent. I'm getting this from the first two verses of the psalm. Let me reread it just as a refresher. It says, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. So let me just kind of give a little bit of a definition of prudent because I don't use prudent in my life, my day-to-day vocab, right? So here's what C.S. Lewis, I think he gives a great definition of prudence in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, prudence means practical common sense, taking the trouble to think out what you are doing and what is likely to come of it. This is exactly what the psalmist is getting at in these first two verses. And here's what prudence, here's where you find prudence in this passage. So it is the blessed life is prudent because one, it's discerning. We see this in the first verse. But secondly, the blessed life is a prudent life because it's instructed, which is what we see in the second verse. Now, let's talk about the instructed before the discerning because the latter informs the former. All right. So first one, it's a prudent, it, it, it is prudent. The blessed life is prudent because it is instructed. So um, this first, the second verse says that the, the psalmist says that this person that's happy delights in the Lord's instruction. Literally your translation, if you have a different translation, you may have it in your Bible, it says law of the Lord. All right. So law has a larger meaning than just like the system of rules that you engage with in this life. It's actually talking about like this holistic teaching for life. The word literally is Torah, which is like this all encompassing holistic teaching for your life. And the psalmist It says the happy one who delights in the Lord's instruction because they meditate on it day and night. So as Lewis says, they take the trouble to think out what they're doing in this life. They think out its implications for all of their life. And literally this person, the psalmist is talking about the happy one. They revolve their entire life around the Lord's instruction, the law of the Lord. Now, here's what this reminded me of this past week, right? So everybody's seen Back to the Future 2? Yes, Back to the Future 2. So if you remember the plot of the story, so Biff, which is like the bad guy of the movie, he steals the DeLorean time machine, right? And so he's in the future. He gets this sports almanac and he goes back and he goes to the old Biff. He gives the sports almanac to the old Biff and says, hey, you, this is like the most important book that you're ever going to have in your entire life. He's like, do you have a safe? And he's like, no, I don't have a safe. So he's like, you need to go get a safe. You need to do everything that you can to protect this book. And so as the movie progresses, you see that Biff revolves his entire life around this sports almanac book, right? Like everything that he does revolves around this book. Like the, 
what, um, he alters his whole life around the book. It's literally everything to him. And so he takes, he gets the safe. He literally, you see this, the book is like worn in its pages. Like the, some pages are a little ripped. There's like mustard stains that are on it. The pages are turning yellow as it gets older it, later into the movie. And he literally, every decision that he makes is based off of this sports almanac. I mean, it's his treasure. In life, I'm sorry, I've got like a frog in my throat. And so I don't know what's going on. I'll, ha- I'll probably have to take a drink in here in a second. But it's everything to him. This sports almanac, it's everything to him. It's his treasure. He has based his whole entire life around this sports almanac. And this, this is exactly what the psalmist is saying about the person who delights in the law of the Lord. They revolve everything around the instruction that they find in the law of the Lord. It's their prize. It's their ultimate treasure. They meditate on it day and night. They want to know it in and out, through and through. They think out its implications on all of life and they adjust their life according to its instruction. Literally, it's their guide, their pathway in which they live. It's the source that they keep coming back to over and over and over again of like, what does it look like for me to pursue life as it was intended to be lived? Now, prudence can't stop here, all right? Can't stop at instruction because of verse one, all right? So verse one says this, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. So even the one who is not happy or blessed is receiving instruction in verse one, right? So what matters is the source and not just the instruction that the person is receiving. So this is why the person who is prudent is not only instructed, but is also discerning. So verse two shows us that the prudent life is also a discerned life. So if you look a little bit closer with me at verse one, you see this three by three pattern that happens, all right? There should be, yeah, here we go. So you have this three by three, right? So you have a person that walks in the advice of the wicked, who stands in the pathway with sinners and who sits in the company of mockers. You have this three by three that's happening. So you have the activity, then you have the counsel, and then you have the source of the counsel that's coming in this thing. So there's this progression that's happening, all right? So you go from this place where you're considering to participating to belonging. You see that? So you have a person that's walking. They're walking along. They, they have this the advice of the wicked that's called out to them, and they consider. They haven't necessarily stopped yet, but they're considering. Then there's a progression that moves to standing. They stop. They're participating now. Now, it's not just someone that's talking at them, but now you have this conversation. They stop, and they're conversating. They're, they're working. They're talking through this advice that they're receiving from this person. And then it progresses to a sense of belonging. They sit. Like they are associating themselves now with these people. This is the place where they now belong. This is their people. This is their community. You see that? So you can't stop an instruction because there's instruction that's going on. And this is for the person that takes the other path, the person that's not happy, the person that's not blessed in this life. This is the course and the action that they take. So you can't just be instructed, you also have to be discerning. The one who is happy discerns the trajectory of the path in which they take and uses wisdom in selecting the course that they're going to take in this life. Now here's why I think this all is important, that there's instruction and discernment, all right? 
Because following God does not lead to a shallow life. Following God does not lead to a shallow life. In following Christ, you live a thoughtful and discerning life. You understand what I'm saying? Like C.S. Lewis, I think, puts it so well. He says this, if you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. See, God wants a child's heart, but a grown-up's head. He wants us to be simple, single-minded, affectionate, and teachable as good children are, but he also wants every bit of intelligence we have to be alert on its job in, in, in first-class fighting trim. So you may be thinking, okay, yes, like I, I want to be a thoughtful, intentional Christian. I want to think, think out the implications of my faith on every facet of life. But you may also be on the other end of the spectrum where you're like, well, maybe I'm not smart enough to be a Christian, right? Like you're seeing the first two verses, like you're hearing these quotes and you're like, well, maybe that's a little bit beyond me. Well, the beauty of Christianity is also tapped into just a few sentences later by C.S. Lewis where he says this, but, but fortunately it works the other way around for people that maybe aren't the most intelligent or don't have like the full like understanding of the scriptures. He says it works the other way around. Anyone who is honestly trying to be a Christian will soon find his intelligence being sharpened. Now why? Well, one of the reasons why it needs no special education to be a Christian is that Christianity is an education itself. God takes you as you are and grows you into the likeness and wisdom of Christ. So here, here's what he's saying, all right? So here's what the psalmist is saying. Here's what I'm just trying to bring before you tonight. The blessed life is one that is prudent. It's instructed, it's instructed by God's holy scriptures. His whole desire for your life is to walk in the path according to which he has laid before you. And it requires discernment. Both paths have instruction, but who's the ultimate source that you're going to follow? Look, the happy life is a, path, is a path all can take, but it requires all of you, your brains and all. So the first path, or the first thing that we see about the, the happy life, the path that the person takes towards the happy life is it's blessed because it's prudent. It's both instructed and it's discerning. Secondly, the blessed life is planted. This is where we're seeing the two paths compared. All right, so verses three through four or where we see this, here's what it says. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff. The wind blows away. So the blessed life is like a tree planted next to a stream because it knows its source of life. You see that? So a tree is dependent on an outside resource for its entire existence, its life, its survival. It's all dependent on something outside of itself. It can't just necessarily provide life in itself. That's why it has roots. That's why it goes down. It has to extract things in order for it to find life. It needs sunlight. It needs soil and all of its nutrients. But it especially needs a constant source of water. And so how does this tree, how, the, how does any plant 
like plant itself? How does it do it? It grows its roots deeper and deeper, but also wider and wider to the point where it cements itself in its particular place. And so this tree is giving us this picture of this tree that maybe it starts small, but its roots grow down deeper, and then it grows down deeper, and then it goes wider and wider. The branches only go as far as the roots will go underground. And so you see this tree that's growing and blooming and blossoming because it's planted itself by this constant source of life, the stream. And the one who is blessed is not only prudent, but, it's root, but it roots itself to the wellspring that it's found of life here in this life. So not only does the Lord's instruction provide us with a guide for life, like what we see with being prudent, but it also nourishes us in this life. It nourishes us. It's not just this thing that we look at for instruction about which way should I go? What, how do I find wisdom? But it also nourishes us in our walk with Jesus. It's something that, that's why we root ourselves into the scriptures. And we see that this does a couple of things. That's rooting ourselves next to or into the scriptures, the very instruction of God in our life because it yields fruit and it helps us endure. It yields fruit and it helps us endure. So fruit is one of the primary evidences that you see that a tree is actually alive, right? Like if you wanna, in the spring, go out and see if your, your trees are still alive, like you don't just look for the leaf, you also look for whatever blossom or bloom or fruit that your tree produces. That gives you indication that there's still life in the tree. Now, how does a tree yield fruit? Does a tree doesn't just channel the water from the roots that it gets, the source of water that it's drawing from. It do, doesn't just channel it like if you go to like a kid's playground or you go to an amusement park, you know those water tables that have all the water that's flowing through it and then it has like the different blocks that you can make the stream go one way or the other. It's not like a channel system that the, the tree is drawing from its water source and then it just channels to where there's like wounding or hurting that's happening in the life or where the, the fruit is going to. It doesn't work like that, nor does it work like a sponge. So it's not just like soaking up water like a sponge and then you don't just rinse, like wring it out where there's fruit that needs to be done. That's not how a tree works either. No, a tree is a living organism. And so what does a tree do? It absorbs. It absorbs the water, it absorbs the minerals, it absorbs the life from the very things that cause life in itself. It causes new growth. And so it is with the life that is blessed. See, the person that has planted their life in the instruction and the words of the Bible is like that, that has this tree that's planted by the stream and it's absorbing everything that it draws from the stream. They don't just read and channel the word in their life because this doesn't produce new growth or new life. It's not like whenever you have anxiety in your life that you just channel the word of God and it's like, okay, don't be anxious. Matthew 6, do not be anxious. Now, that, does that take care of it? No, it doesn't take care of it. You can't just plaster a Bible passage on your anxiety and say, okay, it's done, it's fixed. You can't channel it, nor can you soak it up like a sponge. You can't just memorize all this scripture and then not apply it to your life and expect there to be growth in your life. Like we, we know the people that know all this knowledge about the Bible, but then their life doesn't match up to it. There's no fruit. There's no growth in that. You can't just soak up the word of God, just have all this knowledge that lives in your head, but not do anything about it in the way that it affects your life. No, we have to be like the tree that absorbs 
the scriptures, that absorbs the truth, that absorbs the, it, it, it abstracts the life out of God's word and applies it into his life. That's why it says meditates on the law day and night. So it's not just something that we come to when we have a problem in our life, or it's not just something that we come to in order to win an argument with a person that maybe at our next, our coworker in our workplace or a student that sits next to us in the class. No, we have to be like the tree that plants itself next to the stream and constantly day after day comes back to the source of life that's taking in God's word that's extracting the life that we find from God's word and we think about, we meditate on and we wrestle with and we apply it into our life and that's where we begin to see the real growth that takes place in our life. We are a people that are planted next to the stream. Now notice this little phrase that David puts after this idea of bearing fruit. He says three really important words. He says, in its season. We bear fruit in its season. You see, in a microwave culture, we must come back to the agricultural reality that growth takes time. You hear that? Because we expect immediate results in our life, like we're, we're basically conditioned by our culture to expect immediate results, but this causes nothing but frustration over our own personal lack of growth in our life. You've, have you felt this? You know what I'm talking about? Like, here's what we do. We compare our life to somebody else that's around us, right? Like what we do is we, we see the flaws like we're looking in a mirror. We see the flaws in ourselves, And then we look around next to us and we see other people that may be further along than us with maybe the sin struggle that's in our life. And then all we do is we look at that person and no matter where we're at, if we're not there, then it causes frustration inside of us. And the issue and the problem with this is that we have the wrong pattern. Like God never in any part of the scripture says, compare yourself for the way that you're progressing or growing in this life by those people that are around you. He always draws you back to Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like he, he says, no, you, you don't take your gaze off of Jesus to look around and see how other people are doing around you. That's not your metric. Your metric is Jesus. And so what you do is you look at the life before Christ and then you have your gaze set on Jesus and then you look at the course of how God is bringing you along, of course, the, loss, the, the course of your life to see how am I growing? How am I maturing? Where is fruit being produced in my life? It's not by comparison, but it's by keeping your gaze set on Jesus. He's the metric, not those that are around you. And when we get this, when we get this, then we will realize that fruit is produced in its right season. That we can look back over the course of our life and we can see the growth and the progress and the sanctification that God is bringing us on. If we stop comparing and have our gaze set on Jesus, then this fruit will bear itself in the proper season. I, I had a guy in a community group with me years ago and he had this, he had a few different sin struggles. And so what we did is we kind of had like this accountability relationship. And so he would call me and it was almost daily. And he'd call me and many times it was in tears. He calls me, he's talking to me about this sin issue that's going on. And the question that he just kept coming back to is why is this still present in my life? Like, why isn't God removing this 
struggle that I have in my life. And as we did this, we were in group together for a good few years. And so what happened is almost day to day. And then as course went, the course of time went on, it went to week to week, and then it went month to month, and then it went quarter to quarter. And I remember a phone call three years after doing this together. He calls me, and it's almost the same conversation every time he calls me. There's tears. You can tell he has this broken tone over the other side of the phone. He says, Josh, like I'm three years later, and I still have the same struggle in my life. Like, what's wrong with me? What's going on in my life? And what we had to do is we had to pause in that moment, and I had to say, hey, Andrew, we'll call him Andrew. Um, Andrew, hey, let's think back on the course of our, our friendship here. When we started talking about the struggle in your life, back year one, it was day to day. Like this was a constant daily conversation that we had. We were fighting this together. But then it moved to week to week. And then it moved month to month. And then it moved quarter to quarter. It's been four months since we last had this conversation, Andrew. I said, hey, Bro, like this is the bearing fruit in your life that Jesus is producing. It's a slow growth, yes, but it's growth. Your metric isn't by looking at the other people in our group. Your metric is by keeping your gaze set on Jesus. And as you do that and you look at your life before Jesus and you keep your gaze on Jesus, you see the bearing of fruit that takes place in your life. So if you want to know if you are a, pl- a tree that's planted next to the stream, you look to see, am I a person that's bearing fruit? But secondly, you endure, which you find in verse 4. The tree is planted beside the stream, and it bears its fruit in season. But look, its leaf also does not wither. You see that? So why does the leaf not wither? Is it because it's evaded the changing of seasons? Is it because it's somehow escaped the drought that came in the summer? Is it because the hot winds have somehow been redirected to where it no longer touches this leaf? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. You see, what you see here is the leaf does not escape the harsh realities of nature, but rather it endures them. It doesn't wither. Now, why does the leaf not wither? Well, the leaf doesn't wither because it remains attached to the tree that is planted next to the constant source of life. So it is for the person who's planted in Christ in his word. See, don't be confused when the psalmist writes, whatever he does prospers. It's easy for us to read into this that life will be easier or that life will be more luxurious if we come to faith in Jesus. But just as the tree is not removed from the hardships of nature, neither are followers of Jesus removed from the hardships of life. You feel this. I feel this. And staying attached to the tree, though, the leaf is able to endure. It doesn't wither. And so it is with us. The blessed life does not come by simply acknowledging Jesus It comes by the ongoing reality that you need him and you come back to your need to him moment by moment, day after day, recognizing I need Jesus. I can't do anything apart from Jesus. That's what John 15, 5 says. I'm the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. 
So when hardships and difficulties come, you don't bail on Jesus, you stick with Jesus because it's only through him that you can endure the hardships of life. Otherwise, you're the other illustration here. You're the the shaft that's blown away in the wind. You're light, you're useless, you wither, and you're blown away with the wind. I've talked about this a little bit um, in some of the sermons, but this is about a decade ago. My wife and I, we had some of the most difficult times in our life. And I remember listening to a sermon in the midst of this season. So we had two miscarriages that sandwiched. um, I had a malignant tumor that was found in my body. And um, man, I had a lot of questions. I had a lot of anger, if I'm just being really honest with you, like directed towards God. Like, why would you allow this to happen in my life? Like, these are the questions, the things that are going on. I remember listening to a sermon where this pastor, he also had a bout with cancer in his life. And he remembers having a conversation with his neighbor. And as he is sharing all that's going on in his life, his neighbor knows he's a pastor. And he says, how can you stick with God when he says he loves you unconditionally and he wants what's best for you, how can you stick with a God that's allowing you to go through such a difficult time as this? And the question that this pastor posed back to the the neighbor is something I'll never forget. And I think illustrates our point perfectly here. He says, I think you're wrestling with the wrong question. He said, the real question for me is how can I make it through such suffering without him? He was the tree that was planted next to the stream. He understood that he's the leaf and that if he didn't stick or remain with the tree that's attached to the source of life, that he would be the shaft that withers and is blown away. So listen, the first principle, the first aspect of the blessed life is that it's prudent. The second aspect is that it's planted. It yields fruit and it endures. And then finally, the blessed life is pardoned. We see this in the final two verses. The blessed life is pardoned for a couple of reasons. One, it's forgiven. And then secondly, it's known. We see the first one in verse five. It says, therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. You see, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment or in the assembly of the righteous. But if you're reading into it, the psalmist is basically saying, but the blessed one will. The blessed one will stand at judgment. The blessed one will stand in the assembly of the righteous. And the reason they can stand is not because of anything that they have done. Yes, maybe you've chosen the proper path, the one that leads to happiness. But here's the thing that we all know from the Bible, as well as our own personal experience, is that every single one of us deals with sin. There's not a person that walked through the doors today that could say, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well in my fight with sin right now, right? Like, I, I think I'm good. I think I finally arrived. I'm, my birthday was last week and like I came in and like I've seen all this growth and maturity. Like, I'm good. None of us can come in here and say that. The only way that the person can stand up at judgment, that can stand up in the presence of the righteous is because they are forgiven. They stand up 
And we see this in Psalm 32 in a similar, like, a, this similar illustration. The same word that is used for happy here is used in blessed. So Psalm 32 verses 1 through 2 says this, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful or happy or blessed is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. See, this is what the psalmist is getting at here. He's saying for those people that are standing up at judgment, those people that are standing up in the presence of the righteous, it's because they are forgiven. God does not count their iniquity against them. And I, I love the way that the Heidelberg Catechism explains forgiveness. So it's like this call and response, this question answer thing. And so the, here's the question. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? And listen to the response, the thing that people would memorize about the Holy Scripture. I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. Listen, the person that stands up on judgment, that can stand and sit with the righteous is the person that is forgiven. But not only this is the blessed life, pardoned life because it's forgiven, but it's also fully known. We see this in verse 6. It says this, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. The word watch here, your, some of your translations may actually have the word known, which is the closer word to the original manuscripts that are used here, the original language. And John Piper is a pastor in Minneapolis. He says this word known has more meaning packed into it in the time that the psalm was written than maybe what we have in our point in time. So he uses, there should be a word that comes up here, acknowledge. He said, it's kind of like you take this word acknowledge and you have the word know in here, but then you have the broader meaning of the word acknowledge. That's exactly what's happening here with this word known or watched in Psalm chapter one. And so what, the, what is being personified here is that you're noticed, you're approved, you're affirmed, you're fully accepted. That's what known means here. Someone's identified you, they've noticed you out of the crowd. And not only that, but they know all about your life and they bring you into the fold and you're fully accepted and you're fully affirmed. What every single one of us want in this life. One of my favorite theologians, J.I. Packer, puts it like this. What matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it. The fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. Can you imagine that, church? All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing you. Like, you personally. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there's no moment when his eye is off me or his attention is distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is what the psalmist is putting forth for us when he says that you, he knows the way of the righteous. You're fully known. Now, 
Here's why I think this matters. See, when you are pardoned, you're fully free. The happy life is a pardoned life because you can live fully free, completely accepted, affirmed, noticed, brought into the fold. Now, I, I think one of the best pictures that you can get of a person living free is that of a child, all right? And so there's going to be a picture of my second son, Sutton, here, all right? So um, let me explain what's going on here, all right? Because it's getting at what I'm talking about. So our Sutton, he loves costumes. So we're sitting at the dinner table. He has his mask on. Um, he also is a child that is unique, that he doesn't like a lot of foods that you and I, you and I might like. He doesn't eat bread. Like he won't, if you try to put a pizza in front of him, he's going to give you a blank stare and be like, what are you doing? I don't eat pizza. Like he, he loves fruits. He loves vegetables. He loves things that like are, would come from the ground basically, right? Like not a normal thing for a child. And then look, he has a huge smile on his face. Now here, here's what's happening. Okay. He has a huge smile on his face because he knows that there is no fear that he has in this life. Are there issues that we have to work through in our home? Absolutely. There are ways that he wrongs his brothers, yes. But we have those conversations, we work those things out. So he's not afraid of any punishment that's coming in his life. He's got this huge smile on his face. He also knows he's fully accepted. Like not only does he wear this at our dinner table, he wears it like if you come over to our house, I guarantee you there's gonna be three costume changes that happen at our home. Like he goes and he puts on the costumes, he feels fully accepted. He's also known. If he walks into just any normal kindergarten next year and they have cafeteria food, they're gonna lay food before him, but they don't know him. We, we know what he likes, we know what he dislikes. We know his life. And you know what I love about my son? He lives fully free. He does. He runs like Phoebe from Friends. And he doesn't care. His arms and his legs, are they're flailing all about. He'll go up and he'll talk to a stranger as if like, hey, you should know me and we're going to be best friends. He's not fearful. He lives fully free. And this is exactly the path that the happy one takes, and it leads to a free life. So here's what I do. Just think on these three questions with me, all right? Then we'll land the plane and we'll close. Who or what is the dominant voice in your life? Who or what's the dominant voice in your life? Is it others' opinions of you? Like, is that the guiding source for how you think about and what you do in this life of how other people are going to see you or think about you or what they're going to, the opinions that they're going to hold about you? Is it your shame? Is it your shame? Is it like this continuous remorse over who you are and you try to be the opposite of who you are? Is it your shame that drives you? Is that the dominant voice in your life? Or listen. Is it the Lord's instruction? Secondly, am I fruitful? Am I fruitful? Am I the tree that's planted next to the stream? 
Like we all know fruitful people in our life, right? Like these are the people that whenever you have the conversation with them, they're like challenging and convicting and encouraging and like fill in the blank. Like there are these robust conversations. Like they're the people that you walk away from the conversation feeling full. You know what I'm talking about? Like whenever you sit down and you are with this person like face to face, they're giving you full attention and it feels like a meal. It feels like a meal that you're just consuming like this life-giving, like filling meal as you're sitting down and you're meeting with these people, you're engaging in conversation with these people. Like these are the fruitful people. Is it you? Is that you? Have you planted yourself and are you, are you daily engaging God in his words, coming to meet with him, to fellowship with him and bring in the truths that your soul so desperately needs where you're receiving the life that only he can give and impart to you? Are, is that you? Are you the tree that's planted? Are you fruitful? And then lastly, are you living free? Are you embracing the reality of your forgiveness in Jesus? That you are a child, your family now. Jesus is your older brother. God in heaven is your, your father. Like brothers and sisters here. Like are you accepting the full reality of your forgiveness? And then do you understand that you are completely known? You have a God that knows every thing about you and still wanted you. You know what I'm talking about? Are you living free? Look, the application for all is the same, that we plant ourselves beside the stream. That we trust in Christ as our pardon, that we root ourselves in the scriptures, and then that we're prudent. We're instructed and discerning in this life. Happy is the one who does these things and who delights in the Lord's instruction. So here's how I want to end, all right? So there's this book, The Happiness Curve, that's written by John Roch. I think I'm saying his name right. And he wrote this journal entry that he recounts in this book. And here's what he says. He, he begins, I'm counting blessings this morning in a particular sense. And then he goes to recount all these things that have happened in his 20-year career, all right? So he's about to turn 40 and he's just thinking about all that's happened. He thinks about how he's become a well-accomplished journalist, like won many awards for his work. He thinks about the life and the health that he has and how he used to look in the mirror and he hated himself, but now he looks in the mirror and he's satisfied and how he has plenty of money in the bank. Like there's zero concerns about his welfare moving forward because of the way that he's done so well in this life. And then he considers himself to be in this successful romantic relationship. So he's not at a loss of love. He's not at a loss of resources. He's not at a loss of accomplishments in his life. And after working through all of these, he should be thankful, but he writes this. I tend to go around flaying myself for not working hard enough, not accomplishing what I might. I wonder why I seem not to digest emotionally what is obvious about the list that I just wrote. Accomplishing any of those things in 20 years is unusual and worthy of pride. To accomplish all of them and still be young? It strikes me as a crime to be blaze about, the th about these things. And look at this question. Why don't I walk around 
filled with fulfillment. In essence, he's asking the question, why am I not happy? Well, which path are you going to take? Are you going to take the happy, blessed path? Or are you going to take the way of the wicked? Choose the Psalm 1 path. The blessed life is prudent. The blessed life is planted. And the blessed life is pardoned. Will you follow it? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you um, would give us wisdom, discernment in our life, that we would choose the happy life instead of the wicked, that we wouldn't be short-sighted, but we'd be eternally minded, that we would be the people that look at your scriptures and come back to your scriptures and then we see them as the source of life, that we root ourselves in them and we extract the life that only you can give from them and that we would live fully free. Lord, open our mind to the rest of the Psalms. That we would view the Psalms through what the psalmist has laid before us tonight. And may we be the tree that is planted by the stream and that we could say how happy I am because I delight in the Lord's instruction and I meditate on it day and night. We ask and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.